Chapter 35 of Principles of Geology. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Principles of Geology by Charles Lyell. Whether species have a real existence in nature, continued. Limits of the variability of species. Species susceptible of modification may be altered greatly in a short time and in a few generations, after which they remain stationary. The animals now subject to man had originally an aptitude to domesticity. Acquired peculiarities which become hereditary have a close connection with the habits or instincts of a species in a wild state. Some qualities in certain animals have been conferred with the view of their relation to man. Wild elephant domesticated in a few years, but its faculties incapable of further development. Variability of a species compared to that of an individual. I endeavored, in the last chapter, to show that a belief in the reality of species is not inconsistent with the idea of a considerable degree of variability in the specific character. This opinion, indeed, is little more than an extension of the idea which we must entertain of the identity of an individual throughout the changes which it is capable of undergoing. If a quadruped, inhabiting a cold northern latitude and covered with the warm coat of hair or wool be transported to a southern climate he will often in the course of a few years shed a considerable portion of his coat which it gradually recovers on being again restored to its native country even there the same changes are perhaps superinduced to a certain extent by the return of winter and summer we know that the alpine hare and the ermine or stoat become white during winter and again obtain their full color during the warmer season, and that the plumage of a ptarmigan undergoes a like metamorphosis in color and quantity, and that the change is equally temporary. We are aware that, if we reclaim some wild animal and modify its habits and instincts by domestication, it may, if it escapes, become in a few years nearly as wild and untractable as ever. If the same individual be again retaken, it may be reduced to its former tame state. A plant is sown in a prepared soil, in order that the petals of its flowers may multiply, and their color be heightened or changed. If we then withhold our care, the flowers of the same species become again single. And these, and innumerable other instances, we must suppose that the species was produced with a certain number of qualities, and in the case of animals, with a variety of instincts, some of which may or may not be developed according to circumstances, or which, after having been called forth, may again become latent when the exciting causes are removed. Now, the formation of races seems the necessary consequence of such a capability in species to vary. If it be a general law that the offspring should very closely resemble the parent. But before we can infer that there are no limits to the deviation from an original type which may be brought about in the course of an indefinite number of generations, we are to have some proof that, in each successive generation, Individuals may go on acquiring an equal amount of new peculiarities under the influence of equal changes or circumstances. The balance of evidence, however, inclines most decidedly on the opposite side, for in all cases we find that the quantity of diversions diminishes after a few generations in a very rapid ratio. Species susceptible of modification may be greatly altered in a few generations. It cannot be objected that it is out of our power to go on varying the circumstances in the same manner as might happen in the natural course of events during some great geological cycle. 
For in the first place, where a capacity is given to individuals to adapt themselves to new circumstances, it does not generally require a very long period for its development. If, indeed, such were the case, it is not easy to see how the modifications would answer the ends proposed, for all the individuals would die before new qualities, habits, or instincts were conferred. When we have succeeded in naturalizing some tropical plant in a temperate climate, nothing prevents us from attempting gradually to extend its distribution to higher latitudes, or to greater elevations above the level of the sea, allowing equal quantities of time, or an equal number of generations, for habituating the species to successive increments of cold. But every husbandman and gardener is aware that such experiments will fail. We are more likely to succeed in making some plants in the course of the first two generations support a considerable degree of difference of temperature, than a very small difference afterwards, though we persevere for many centuries. It is the same if we take any other cause instead of temperature, such as the quality of the food, or the kind of dangers to which an animal is exposed, or the soil in which a plant lives. The alteration in habits, form, or organization is often rapid during a short period, when the circumstances are made to vary farther, though in ever so slight a degree, all modification ceases, and the individual perishes. Thus some herbivorous quadrupeds may be made to feed partially on fish or flesh, but even these can never be taught to live on some herbs which they reject, and which would poison them, although the same may be very nutritious to other species of the same natural order. So when man uses force or stratagem against wild animals, the persecuted race soon becomes more cautious, watchful, and cunning. New instincts seem often to be developed, and to become hereditary in the first two or three generations. But let the skill and address of men increase, however gradually, no farther variation can take place. No new qualities are elicited by the increasing dangers. The alteration of the habits of the species has reached a point beyond which no ulterior modification is possible however indefinite the lapse of ages during which the new circumstances operate. Extirpation then follows, rather than such a transformation as could alone enable the species to perpetuate itself under the new state of things. Animals now subject to man had originally an aptitude to domesticity. It has been well observed by M. F. Cuvier and M. Durot de la Malle that unless some animals had manifested in a wild state an aptitude to second the efforts of man, their domestication would never have been attempted. If they had all resembled the wolf, the fox, and the hyena, the patience of the experimentalist would have been exhausted by innumerable failures before he at last succeeded in obtaining some imperfect results. So if the first advantages derived from the cultivation of plants would have been elicited by as tedious and costly a process that is by which we now make some slight additional improvements in certain races, we should have remained to this day in ignorance of the greater number of their useful qualities. Acquired instincts of some animals become hereditary. It is undoubtedly true that many new habits and qualities have not only been acquired in recent times by certain races of dogs, but have been transmitted to their offspring. But in these cases it will be observed that the new peculiarities have an intimate relation to the habits of the animal in a wild state and therefore do not attest any tendency to a departure to an indefinite extent from the original type of the species. A race of dogs employed for hunting deer in the platform of Santa Fe in Mexico affords a beautiful illustration of a new hereditary instinct. The mode of attack, observed M. Rowland, which they employ consists in seizing the animal by the belly and overturning it in a sudden effort, taking advantage of the moment when the body of this deer rests upon only the forelegs. 
the weight of the animal thus thrown over is often six times that of its antagonist. A dog of pure breed inherits a disposition to this kind of chase, and never attacks a deer from before while running. Even should the deer, not perceiving him, come directly upon him, the dog steps aside and makes his assault on the flank, whereas other hunting dogs, though of superior strength and general sagacity, which are brought from Europe, are destitute of this instinct. For want of similar precautions, they are often killed by the deer on the spot, the vertebrae of their neck being dislocated by the violence of the shock. A new instinct has also become hereditary in a mongrel race of dogs employed by the inhabitants of the banks of the Magdalena, almost exclusively in hunting the white-lipped picari. The address of these dogs consists in restraining their ardor and attaching themselves to no animal in particular, but keeping the whole herd in check. Now, among these dogs some are found, which the very first time they are taken to the woods are acquainted with this mode of attack, whereas a dog of another breed starts forward at once, is surrounded by the picari, and whatever may be his strength, is destroyed in a moment. Some of our countrymen, engaged of late in conducting one of the principal mining associations in Mexico, that of Real de Monte, carried out with them some English greyhounds of the best breed, to hunt the hares which abound in that country. The great platform which is the scene of sport is at an elevation of about 9,000 feet above the level of the sea, and the mercury in the barometer stands habitually at the height of about 19 inches. It was found that the greyhounds could not support the fatigues of a long chase in this attenuated atmosphere, and before they could come up with their prey, they lay down gasping for breath. But these same animals have produced whelps which have grown up, and are not in the least degree incommoded by the want of density in the air run down the hairs which as much each as the fleetest of their race in this country. The fixed and deliberate stand of the pointer has with propriety been regarded as a mere modification of a habit, which may have been useful to a wild race accustomed to win game, and steal upon it by surprise, first pausing for an instant in order to spring with unerring aim. The faculty of the retriever, however, may justly be regarded as more inexplicable and less easily referable to the instinctive passions of the species. M. Mahindia, says a French writer in a recently published memoir, having learned that there is a race of dogs in England which stopped and brought back game of their own accord, procured a pair, and having obtained a wolf from them, kept it constantly under his eyes, until he had an opportunity of assuring himself that, without having received any instruction, and on the very first day that it was carried to the chase, it brought back game with as much steadiness as dogs which had been schooled into the same maneuver by means of the whip and collar. Attributes of animals and their relation to man. Such attainments, as well as the habits and disposition which the shepherd's dog and many others inherit, seems to be of a nature and extent which we can hardly explain by supposing them to be modifications of the instincts necessary for the preservation of the species in a wild state. When such remarkable habits appear in races of the species, we may reasonably conjecture they were given with no other view than for the use of man and the preservation of the dog, which thus obtains protection. As a general rule, I fully agree with M. F. Cuvier that, in studying the habits of animals, we must attempt, as far as possible, to refer their domestic qualities to modifications of instincts which are implanted in them in a state of nature, and that writer has successfully been pointed out in an admirable essay on the domestication of the mammalia, the true origin of many dispositions which are vulgarly attributed to the influence of education alone we should go too far if we did not admit that some of the qualities of particular animals and plants may have been given solely with a view to the connection which it was foreseen would exist between them and man. 
especially when we see that connection to be in many cases so intimate, that the greater number, and sometimes, as in the case of the camel, all the individuals of the species which exist on earth are in subjugation to the human race. All the individuals of the species which exist on the earth are in subjection to the human race. We can perceive in the multitude of animals, especially in some of the parasitic tribes, that certain instincts and organs are conferred for the purpose of defense or attack against some other species. Now, if we are reluctant to suppose that the existence of similar relations between man and the instincts of many of the inferior animals, we adopt an hypothesis no less violent, though in the opposite extreme to that which has led some to imagine the whole animate and inanimate creation to have made been solely for the support, gratification, and instruction of mankind. Many species, most hostile to our persons or property, multiply, in spite of our efforts to repress them. Others, on the contrary, are intentionally augmented many hundredfold in number by our exertions. In such instances, we must imagine the relative resources of man, and of species friendly or inimical to him, to have been prospectively calculated and adjusted. To withhold assent to this supposition would be to refuse what we must grant in respect to the economy of nature and every other part of the organic creation. For the various species of contemporary plants and animals have obviously the relative forces nicely balanced, and their respective tastes, passions, and instincts so contrived that they are all in perfect harmony with each other. In no other manner could it happen that each species, surrounded as it is by countless danger, should be enabled to maintain its ground for periods of considerable duration. The docility of the individuals of some of our domestic species, extending as it does, to attainments foreign to the natural habits and faculties, may, perhaps, have been conferred with a view to their association with man. But, lest species should be thereby made to vary indefinitely, we find that such habits are never transmissible by generation. A pig has been trained to hunt and point game with great activity and steadiness, and other learned individuals of the same species have been taught to spell, but such fortuitous acquirements never become hereditary, for they have no relation whatever to the exigencies of the animal in a wild state, and cannot, therefore, be developments of any instinctive propensities. Influence of Domestication An animal in domesticity, says M. F. Cuvier, is not essentially in a different situation in regard to the feeling of restraint from one left to itself lives in society without constraint because, without doubt, it was a social animal, and conforms itself to the will of man, because it has a chief, to which, in a wild state, it would have yielded obedience. There is nothing in its new situation that is not conformable to its propensities. It is satisfying its wants by submission to a master, and makes no sacrifice of its natural inclinations. All the social animals, when left to themselves, form herds more or less numerous and all the individuals of the same herd know each other, are mutually attached, and will not allow a strained individual to join them. In a wild state, moreover, they obey some individual, which, by its superiority, has become the chief of the herd. Our domestic species had originally the sociability of disposition, and no solitary species, however easy it may be to tame it, has yet afforded the true domestic races. We merely, therefore, develop, to our own advantage, propensities would propel the individuals of certain species to draw near to their fellows. The sheep which we have reared is induced to follow us, as it would be led to follow the flock among which it was brought up. When individuals of gregarious species have been accustomed to one master, it is he alone whom they acknowledge as their chief, he only whom they obey. 
The elephant allows himself to be directed only by the Karnak whom he has adopted. The dog itself, reared in solitude with its master, manifests a hostile disposition towards all others, and everybody knows how dangerous it is to be in the midst of a herd of cows, in pastures that are little frequented, when they have not at their head the keeper who takes care of them. Everything, therefore, tends to convince us that formerly men were only with regard to the domestic animals, but those who are particularly charged with the care of them still are, namely, members of the society which these animals form among themselves, and that they are only distinguished in the general mass by the authority which they have enabled to assume from their superiority of intellect. Thus, every social animal which recognizes man as a member and as the chief of its herd is a domestic animal. It might even be said, that from the moment when such an animal admits man as a member of its society, it is domesticated, as man could not enter into such society without becoming the chief of it. But the ingenious author whose observations I have here cited admits that the obedience which the individuals of many domestic species yield indifferently to every person is without analogy in any state of things which could exist previously to their subjugation by man. Each troop of wild horses, it is true, has some stallion for its chief who draws after him all the individuals of which the herd is composed. When a domesticated horse has passed from hand to hand, and has served several masters, he becomes equally docile towards any person, and is subjected to the whole human race. It seems fair to presume that the capability and the instinct of the horse to be thus modified was given to enable the species to render greater services to man, and, perhaps, the facility with which many other acquired characters become hereditary in various races of the horse may be explicable only on a like supposition. The amble, for example, a pace to which the domestic races in some parts of Spanish America are exclusively trained, has, in the course of several generations, become hereditary, and is assumed by all the young colts before they are broken in. It seems also reasonable to conclude that the power bestowed upon the horse the dog, the ox, the sheep, the cat, and many species of domestic fowls of supporting almost every climate was given expressly to enable them to follow man throughout all parts of the globe, and in order that we might obtain their services and their protection. If it be objected that the elephant which, by the union of strength, intelligence, and docility, can render the greatest services to mankind, it is incapable of living in any but the warmest latitudes, we may observe the quantity of vegetable food required by this quadruped would render its maintenance in the temperate zones too costly, and in the Arctic impossible. Among the changes superinduced by man, none appear, at first sight, more remarkable than the perfect tameness of certain domestic races. It is well known that, at however early an age we obtain possession of the young of many unreclaimed races, they will retain, throughout life, a considerable timidity and apprehensiveness of danger. Whereas, after one or two generations, the descendants of the same stock will habitually place the most implicit confidence in man. There is good reason, however, to suspect that such changes are not without analogy in a state of nature, or to speak more correctly, in situations where man has not interfered. We learn from Mr. Darwin that, in the Galapagos archipelago, placed directly under the equator and nearly 600 miles west of the American continent, all the terrestrial birds as the finches, doves, hawks, and others are so tame that they may be killed with a switch. One day, says its author, a mockingbird alighted on the edge of a pitcher which I held in my hand, and began to quietly sip the water. 
and allowed me to lift it with a vessel from the ground. Yet formerly, when the first Europeans landed and found no inhabitants in these islands, the birds were even tamer than now. Already they are beginning to acquire that salutary dread of man which in countries long settled is natural even to young birds, which have never received any injury. So in the Falkland Islands, both the birds and foxes are entirely without fear of man, whereas in the adjoining mainland of South America, many of the same species of birds are extremely wild, for there they have for ages been persecuted by the natives. Dr. Richardson informs us, in his able history of the habits of North American mammals, that in the retired parts of the mountains where the hunters had seldom penetrated, there is no difficulty in approaching the Rocky Mountain sheep which there exhibit the simplicity of a character so remarkable in the domestic species. But where they have been often fired at, they are exceedingly wild, alarm their companions on the approach of danger by a hissing noise, and scale the rocks with a speed and agility that baffle pursuit. It is probable, therefore, that as man, in diffusing himself over the globe, has tamed many wild races, so also he has made many tame races wild. Had some of the larger carnivorous beasts capable of scaling the rocks made their way into the North American mountains before our hunters, a similar alteration in the instincts of the sheep would doubtless have been brought about. Wild elephants domesticated in a few years. No animal affords a more striking illustration of the principal points which I have been endeavoring to establish than the elephant. For, in the first place, the wonderful sagacity with which he accommodates himself to the society of men and the new habits which he contracts, are not the result of time, nor of modifications produced in the course of many generations. These animals will breed in captivity, as is now ascertained, in opposition to the vulgar opinion of many modern naturalists, and in conformity to that of those Asians, Alien, and Columella. Yet it has always been the custom, as the least expensive mode of attaining them, to capture wild individuals in the forest, usually when full-grown, and in a few years after they are taken, sometimes, it is said, in the space of a few months, their education is completed. Had the whole species been domesticated from an early period in the history of man, like the camel, their superior intelligence would, doubtless, have been attributed to their long and familiar intercourse with the lord of the creation. But we know that a few years is sufficient to bring about this wonderful change of habits. And although the same individual may continue to receive tuition for a century afterwards, yet it makes no farther progress in the general development of its faculties. Were it otherwise, indeed, the animal would soon deserve more than the poet's epithet of half-reasoning. From the authority of our countrymen employed in the late Burmese war, it appears, in corroboration of older accounts, that when elephants are required to execute extraordinary tasks, they be made to understand that they will receive unusual rewards. Some favorite dainty is shown to them, in the hope of acquiring which the work is done. And so perfectly does the nature of their contract appear to be understood, that the breach of it, on the part of the master, is often attended with danger. In this case, a power has been given to the species to adapt their social instincts to new circumstances with surprising rapidity. The extent of this change is defined by strict and arbitrary limits. There is no indication of a tendency to continue diversions from certain attributes with which the elephant was originally endued, no ground whatever for anticipating that, in thousands of centuries, any material alteration could ever be effected. Although we confer from analogy is that some more useful and peculiar races might probably be formed if the experiment were fairly tried, and that some individual characteristic, now only casual and temporary, 
might be perpetuated by a generation. In all cases, therefore, where the domestic qualities exist in animals, they seem to require no lengthened process for their development, and they appear to have been wholly denied to some classes, which, from their strength and social disposition, might have rendered great services to man, as, for example, the greater part of the quadrumana. The orangutan, indeed, which, for its resemblance in form to man, and apparently for no other good reason, has been assumed by Lamarck to be the most perfect of the inferior animals, has been tamed by the savages of Borneo, and made to climb lofty trees, and to bring down the fruit. But he is said to yield to his masters an unwilling obedience, and to be held in subjection only by a severe discipline. We know nothing of the faculties of this animal which can suggest the idea that it rivals the elephant in intelligence, much less anything which can countenance the dreams of those who fancied that it might have been transmuted into the dominant race. One of the baboons of Sumatra appears to be more docile, and is frequently chained by the inhabitants to ascend trees for the purpose of gathering coconuts, a service in which the animal is very expert. He selects, says Sir Stamford Raffles, the ripe nuts, with great judgment, and pulls no more than he is ordered. The capuchin and cacajal monkeys are, according to Humboldt, taught to ascend trees in the same manner, and to throw down fruit on the banks of the lower Orinoco. It is for the Margians to explain how it happens that those same savages of Borneo have not themselves acquired by dint of longing for many generations, for the power of climbing trees, the elongated arms of the orang, or even the prehensile tails of some American monkeys instead of being reduced to the necessity of subjugating stubborn and untractable roots, we should naturally have anticipated that their wants would have excited them to efforts, and that continued efforts would have given rise to new organs, or rather to the reacquisition of organs which, in a manner irreconcilable with the principle of the progressive system, have grown obsolete in tribes of men which have such constant need of them. Recapitulation. It follows, then, from the different facts which have been considered in this chapter, that a short period of time is generally sufficient to effect nearly the whole change which an alteration of external circumstances can bring about in the habits of a species, and that such capacity of accommodation to new circumstances is enjoyed in very different degrees by different species. Certain qualities appear to be bestowed exclusively with a view to the relations which are destined to exist between different species, and, among others, between certain species and man but these latter are always so nearly connected with the original habits and propensities of each species in a wild state, that they imply no indefinite capacity of varying from the original type. The acquired habits derived from human tuition are rarely transmitted to the offspring, and when this happens, it is almost universally the case with those merely which have some obvious connection with the attributes of a species when in a state of independence. End of chapter 35